0: Um, and my hope is that in the same way you would learn Greek to understand physics, you, or you would learn Latin to understand law, you would learn the indigenous language or whatever space you're in to understand sustainability. And it would afford practitioners the living wage jobs, the agency and executive directing decision-making and recalibrating what others fucked up.
1: Welcome back to Radical Narrative. I am your host, Mylan Tatusis. Very awesome episode coming to you today. I'm sitting down with Kamuela Inos from Waianae, Hawaii. He will position himself in this podcast to give you specifics about where he's from and what he does. But this episode was really insightful for me. I had to actually sit and reflect multiple times to catch on to what he was saying. And this was the second time I got to sit down with Kamuela Inos. Enos and have a conversation about the work he does. Um, and I first met him when I was in Hawaii um, out at Ma'o Farms. He's now in a formal position as a director of the Office of Indigenous Innovation for the University of Hawaii. So listen in as we have a conversation about Hawaiian strengths and history, Kamehameha's badassery, indigenous data scientists and ultimately the need to create infrastructure and economic engines for our people to reclaim the lives we want. It was an amazing conversation. I'm still reflecting on it. I really hope you enjoy it. So stay tuned and listen in. Yeah, and I, and I'll let you introduce yourself um, in in your own way, however you feel comfortable introducing yourself.
0: Aloha mai Ogo o Kamola Joseph Inos. No makahamai au o kaala ku mauna o honua ku kawe o makua ku kawe kaka'i kalmai. O inos kohana um my um, my yeah. my um, my name is Kamala Joseph Inos. You know, so, Kanaka, um, uh, um, one of the many genealogies that flow through my veins <laughs> comes from Hawaii, but many other places. Kala um, is my mountain that raised me. Uh, Honua is the stream that um, emanated from that mountain that was, gave me water, and Makua is the ocean that I grew up in, gone in and out of, and these are all in the Mokua Wai'anae um, on the island of Oahu, um, and my community um, is predominantly Native Hawaiian uh, on the island of Oahu.
1: Yeah, and Wai'anae is unique. Can you explain what's unique about Wai'anae on the island of Oahu?
0: The Hawaiians on Wai'anae. Not a lot of them are genealogically from Um, Wai'anae. Wai'anae is where they shunted us, Mm. but the mountains and the land received us and allowed us to reclaim who we were, very graciously. Um, And I'm a child of (laughs) activists, so my father is Eric Enos and my mother is Rochelle Nui. I mean, they're both native Hawaiians and they're both active in our community. My father was a group of and a group of his peers, um, reclaimed our agricultural lands in the back of the valley in the late 70s.
1: Yeah, the late 70s was unique in Hawaii, obviously like the Hawaiian Renaissance. But can you give context to to why that was such a unique time for your family and your land?
0: Um, and many of them had been forced to unlearn who they were. But the 60s was a great time of relearning. So they took it upon themselves to join in a collective awakening to relearn who we were. Um, and they brought water back down to a traditional water, our um, Ar- agrarian systems, ways that we grew food, and um, did it not just as an act of resistance, but mm-hmm. as an act of regeneration, of restoration. Um, and from that space, evolved a practice that we are all trying to work towards now people i work closely with are restoring our practices in ways that allow us agency in contemporary times um, and opportunities to co-learn together but owning our ip <laughs> owning our um, agency owning and shooting for executive decision making again in our own
1: homeland Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and that's how I came to met you was seeing your projects out there and your paradigm in terms of how you're thinking about the land and, and ultimately delivering very unique results that, that I haven't really noticed in much other sort of projects. I mean, there's tons of projects in indigenous countries out there. Um, but yours was really unique. And, and I want to talk about that a little bit later. Um, but, but, and I know you give a lot of context about who you are and where you come from, but how do you choose to position yourself?
0: And I'm the son, the eldest of four boys and of uh, a sister, we also identify um, Kane. Uh, we don't have any Mahu or Wahine in our family.
1: So, yeah, Kane meaning man, uh, Wahine meaning woman, and Mahu meaning two spirit, and um, two spirit being how my indigenous people refer to Mahu, which would be two spirited people. Um, But you're also a father, you're also the oldest brother, and that shows up in in how you like to explain things. I really like that. So, yeah, is there anything you want to say about that?
0: (laughs) Being the eldest child and a father that has zero work-life boundaries, I jokingly say that I have 47 years of applied experience (laughs) in direct (laughs) community. (laughs) Uh, 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 um, And I think that is a real important to acknowledge that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I like how you acknowledge that. I like how you say you have this experience, not only like in terms of the work you're doing, what we will talk about, but also being a community member, being a big brother, being a father now and how this work basically is, is tied to who you are and what you're doing in terms of how you live your life. And I like that, too, because much of my work is tied directly to my life and, and to my experience of being a father now, um, being a partner and and the projects I'm trying to start. But we had a conversation before where you, you, you highlighted it even earlier where you said specifically um, intellectual property and ex- executive decision-making power. Um, but you also talked about agency. How would you explain agency?
0: My ancestors and my grandparents, through them, were Hawaiians who always exhibited agency. Um, my mother's grandfather was Native Hawaiian, worked in the government, so he was actually one of the few early Hawaiians to have a graduate degree that we know. And my father's um, grandfather, um, gran- my father's father, and my father's mother, my, my paternal grandparents, were both Native Hawaiians, blue collar workers. Um, my grandfather Joe was a machinist in Pearl Harbor and fought in World War II. And my grandmother Carol was a maid in Waikiki. But as blue collar workers, they had the foresight to buy land and because they bought land and they sacrificed because of those sacrifices, my father could have the ability to create economic development nonprofits <laughs> and not have to be subjected to the grinding poverty that we saw around us. So I acknowledge that their sacrifices and the idea not a sacrifice, I think that's a Western concept. I think it's more of an understanding of continuity and what you're providing to people to come after you so they can, at the very least, be as excellent as you. Their work, um, I carry the weight of continuing. Uh, the In Hawaii, we call it coma, the burden of making sure that, the joyful burden <laughs> of making sure that I um, follow in their steps and provide as much as they've provided for
1: yeah that that's an amazing positionality like in terms of moving forward in this conversation it really highlights who you are where you come from and ultimately the relationship to the work that that you do
0: so that is um kind of my introduction of my you know my peoples and my and my genealogy and my land and that informs my practice which i think we can talk about through conversations because I don't know who I like, am. <laughs> yeah, not, not like, like, <laughs>
1: yeah,
0: yeah. I guess the better way to put it is we're occupying some really liminal spaces right now where the people who are really certain on who they are, are probably the first people that's gonna catch the hardest cracks as much as like we need to be understanding what we're becoming. Yeah. Um we need to be clear who we were mm-hmm. and what we carry, what are finding? as people that had to navigate a lot to acknowledge when you're traveling to an open ocean you've not traveled to before. And uh, how do you, how do you, what are the skills you need to wayfind find in that context and what you carry with you and what you have to kind of understand you know, what the relationship So hopefully that's an introduction that serves. And I'm really appreciative of this conversation. I'm really appreciative to be here.
1: Yeah, that's amazing. Even even just how you you even highlighted the fact that Indigenous people we have these positionalities, we have you know this relationship to our land and our ancestors, and because of that, colonialism is not over. Like uh, climate change is ongoing, and and because we have these relationships, you know, potentially there's a chance that we could become victims, and 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 we'll talk about that later. Um, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's an amazing introduction, and it was all in there, like place and and family and lineage and heritage, and and then like like for us in this podcast, really, what we're doing is sharing knowledge with people because everybody, like, I like how you positioned wayfinding and finding a way to move forward and with an agency, like having the agency to decide. Because for me, it's like I always have this saying now, and I find myself saying it more and more. Where where we're navigating a colonial world and and it's chaotic <laughs> like we're navigating chaos and and it was interesting for you to position, um, you know the reality that that some for for the world we're living in it, it's often going to be the indigenous people that that you know maybe pushed on the on the on the side or maybe oppressed and. And I guess to position this conversation, when I first met you, you were working out at Mao Farms and I, I know you're not there now, but you're just dropping this knowledge in terms of like economic philosophy and and social sustainability and working for young people and everything was like syncing together in terms of 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 your discourse. And and that just stood out to me because because you were invested in projects and you're coming from a paradigm that I saw was delivering results and that always stuck with me. Like I always remember, you know, come who was there, he was talking and this is what he was saying. And the, and I don't remember the specific words, but I felt what you were saying was like, it stuck with me. And I was like, that guy knows what he's talking about and, and he's wayfinding. And, and for me like what 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 stood out the most was literally the results of your projects and what you're doing so so I guess I'll ask that as a question is 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 where are you now uh, what type of work are you doing and and what do you you bring to the work that you're doing in terms of your own philosophy and and I guess continuing off your introduction there
0: yeah, well thank you, and I really appreciate that there was resonance um when we would have people come tomorrow it was something that really meant a lot to me um, that I honestly felt if what we were doing is successful only in our community, then we're abject failures. Mm. On the other hand, this isn't a franchise where you could just say, well, all you gotta do is get kids to go to college and start a farm and boom, you solved hundreds of years of (laughs) 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 It's that easy. and Because then you'll be blowing smoke up people's ass. (laughs) <laughs> what the hell did they sell so it was always about that. the hope was in these conversations we would have when people would visit it's not replication
1: yeah yeah and and you highlight how it's resonance right and 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 it did resonate with me because because yeah your your project was yielding results and 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 just to sum up mountain farms is it's a land-based project where you literally grow food and you have children working there and they're not only eating and growing the food but they're also going to college as a result of that project and coming back and working for the land-based project. I summed it up very briefly like they could people you could google it. We'll put it in the show notes so you could see it, maybe even visit there one day after the pandemic because they do tours also. Um but yeah, it was a cool project to see. And and I know you're not there right now and um can you explain what you're doing now?
0: So I am um currently the director of a brand new office that was created is called office of indigenous innovation. Um, and I'm working now out of the research arm of the university of Hawaii. So I'm in the office of the vice president for research and innovation free wage system.
1: Yeah. So it's like a new flow for you. It's like a new space you're in going from like literally growing food out on the land to, to the offices.
0: (laughs) If you want to be as radically different workspace. We're going to like.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's a new office, right? It's a new office. So, so, can you explain to me and our listeners what what this office is because it is it is pretty unique.
0: So, this office is in. This is the only office of its kind, in um, what we would consider in America. We're situated within the Office of Research, and I'm right next to the Vice President I'm in the Executive Arm of the University.
1: Yeah, yeah, you're in there. You're like literally in a research wing and arm of of a university right next to the office of the vice president, right?
0: (laughs) What am I doing here? I ask myself quite often, but the genealogy of it is clear. The genealogy of this office Mm -hmm. is based out of the university. The fact that for many years at Mall Farms, because the way we were structured as a not-for-profit that generated revenue,
1: yeah, so it's a not-for-profit that generated revenue, and there's no denying that not only did you grow food, but you generated revenue and could sustain a program for young people. Um, and ultimately, your success in that work led you to the position you're in now. Can you explain the program at Ma'o and how it worked, ultimately just summing it up?
0: the The programmatic part was to recruit young adults from our community to run the daily operations of our organic farm in exchange for the sweat equity. We provided them full tuition, waiver to our university, the community college. Mm-hmm. And we asked for a two year commitment because we graduated them with their associates and moved them on to their baccalaureate. And that partnership with the university was intrinsic. It wasn't an add on, it was a fundamental part of our relationship. And then through that space, We were able to create degree programs in the university system. And then I actually ended up become a lecturer.
1: Yeah. And I think that's what's unique about Ma'o is that you guys actually figured out a way to, to get people into college and go to college and come back and work for the community while at the same time growing food. And that's just like, that, that, that's really cool. Um, but now you're in the office of indigenous research, what are the key features of this office and, and what makes that office unique?
0: One of the key points of this office is that, A, we've been providing, well, basically it was an, ad, an auxiliary staff for the university anyway. <laughs> and B, it was an understanding that we're hitting a point at Ma'o where we are too big for local funders and no context for us for national funders. Damn. And also this idea of, I super don't romanticize activism. <laughs> um, you know, because I think it was something I was raised in. I carry incredible privilege in that I'm a child of activists and that, you know, I've had a lot of time and a lot of work and the type of activism my father's generation was really done through this blue collar lens of like, we're not academics, (laughs) we can't just hold signs to stop golf courses because the rest of the people in our community need those jobs and we're going to look like assholes if we're just saying no development and not providing a culture proposal. Well, that's great for you. And super stoked you went to college and learned about your identity. But the rest of us, we got to get that job. No one paying our yeah, shit. Yeah. And like my father, them having to get those hard cracks early on to be like, well, how do we create our own jobs then?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I really like this, especially for me as a scholar, as somebody who also owns privilege in terms of, you know, having access to certain financial livelihood where I'm not out there doing that blue collar work per se. Um, so I'm really mindful now, especially at this point in my age where where um, I'm being mindful of my type of activism and projects I want to start because I want people to live healthy lives. So. That's, that, that's what's unique about you and, and what you're having a conversation about is that there's multiple considerations we have to make. And, you know, the necessity of this office and the necessity of of this front you're working in in terms of, you know, still doing the work, but it may look a bit different than, than the frontline activism, but it's still there. And, and I really like how you're painting this picture and highlighting these considerations, especially like in terms of like the blue collar work that was taking place in the 60s, 70s, that your father was a part of, and, and that, yeah, there's still fundamental food we need to get here, and there's still fundamental necessities we need in life here to, to live. And, and your father did that, like you highlighted that in a previous conversation we had where it wasn't just like resistance and, and saying no to something, it was providing the alternative also. So can you explain how your father and, and that group of activists in your genealogy went about doing that?
0: they brought back a traditional fisher people to teach our people how to fish with this explicit intent of building on economic development.
1: Yeah, so not only recovering traditional fishing practices, but also it sounds like those practices had a very utilitarian value to provide for the people again. Did you have conversations at Ma'o about these land-based practices in terms of your nonprofit and how you're going to go about or how you chose to go about trying to make them utilitarian and practical again? And I like what you're saying about not romanticizing not only activism, but even the traditional practices, right? Because the traditional practices did have that very fundamental value of providing for the masses and providing for the people. So how did these conversations around traditional practices show up at Ma'o?
0: we're seeing a model. we had the hard question of how do we normalize them? I and mean, how do we de-romanticize being on the periphery and talking about what we lost and using that narrative to mourn and to others who are in Hawaiian to mourn with us, to move towards, well, oh shit, your system's learnable. And our system is carrying, the more we intersect with your system, we understand our value proposition. Mm-hmm. Cause it's super easy for us to start to talk in Hawaiian and do reporting to some of the grants that are coming down from these funders. Mm. Cause they're talking about collective impacts, aggregating like file systems, manage all these things that like it's in our fucking DNA. Yeah. yeah. Things always new. (laughs) And we started going to college and we're like, Hey, you forced us to go to college. We're learning your stuff. It's like, you're talking about our stuff. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And this is what's unique about your work and you is that you're flipping the script on them, especially in this era of like climate change and sustainability. You're saying, no, we knew this stuff. No, we know how to do this. And it's in like you said, it's in our fucking DNA. Our ancestors did this, like we fed the masses sustainably. And and that's (laughs) so cool. Like In my mind, it's just like makes sense. And and for me, like what comes up for me is is my undergraduate professor's work, uh, Gerald Visner, when he wrote about survivance, when, when you're moving forward in a way where you're still autonomous and you're still determining your agency to make decisions and to thrive. And I guess this is also unique to Hawaii and the Kingdom of Hawaii at one time, where, where well, I'll, I'll let you talk about it and I guess explain the history that you weren't always a dispossessed people and oppressed people. You were moving forward and and in quotations, I guess modernizing in a unique way. And I guess for our listeners, of course, you know, I'm really critical of capitalism and industry and economics in terms of how it's taking place here in North America around the extraction industries. But when we boil it down to basically a conversation around, again, in quotations, economic development, as as Kam was going to highlight, we have to have these conversations to figure out how to 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 provide for people. Um, so so yeah, I guess I'll I'll let you answer that question. Is is how are how does this conversation um, come forward based off your ancestors? So I have to
0: talk about my office through just the history of the grace our kupuna ancestors provided us. There was always this inclination in Hawaiian um, to do to bring stuff in. And I wanna openly acknowledge that the Hawaiian experience of indigene is very different. And Western is very, very different than our cousins on the continent, mm-hmm. absolutely different. I super don't wanna, this is my intersectionality. Like I'm native Hawaiian, I'm not of the tribes of, 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 of um, you know what, the, what you would call the continent mm-hmm. in your own language in which you live now. And we didn't have the type of violence and we didn't have the type of trauma that I'm learning about in Canada. Mm-hmm. So that's my here, and that's my apology if any of this comes off as flipping. And I think because of our own relationship with the colonizer, we lost our kingdom and we lost these things. But we didn't suffer the type of war and violence that many other Indigenous people did. And I carry that weight of what were our ancestors were allowed to learn because we were in a different type. There was an absolute violence, but it was a different type of violence. It was a violence of disease, it was a violence of separation. But it also created a space for us to learn. We were able to have our kings and our royalty translate, our ancestral chiefs translate into Western royalty. So we had Kawa and Kamehameha. All of our chiefs adopted contemporary structures early on and you know that was a really powerful part of how I understand them like how quickly native Hawaiians adopted the printing press how quickly when when when, quote unquote the, the Americans or like the British um found Hawaiians they didn't find a bunch of stragglers all a bunch of fucking hammers, right? And they were like, <laughs> looking at these guys like, what are you doing here? Yeah. And you know, they said, you have things we like about you, <laughs> but touch our chief and find out <laughs> what's going to happen. And they found out. Yeah. So we ended up killing Cook. Yeah. Um, the part is that how quickly they adopted things, like the stories of Kamehameha um, Nui lashing cannons to his canoes and taking British sailors into his, into his family. And they're like, shit, we're rolling with you, man.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So British sailors choosing to link up with the native Hawaiians and ultimately giving them advice.
0: Here's what you do. <laughs> These guys have big ships. You got super fast canoes and a badass fucking standing army. Take some guns, lash some cannons to the canoes, buy a couple of galleons. You'll flank them yeah. and they'll have a galleon to meet them. And they're going to be looking like, you know, you, you're not going to take on the entire world. Mm-hmm. But when they look at you, they're going to be like, this is more trouble than this yeah. Word. yeah. <laughs> you guys can have this face, And they ended up waiting for Kamehameha to pass before they came in. Huh. Because how quickly he understood their system. Because he was so solid in his. He didn't meet them from a form of grievance. He met them in strength because he was strong. And I've always loved that, you know, and that was always the hard part of the activism I was raised in, because I was raised, you know, working on the land. Mm. Then I went to college, and I was my bachelor's is in Hawaiian studies and my master's is in urban and regional planning, but I dropped out of high school. So <laughs> my <laughs> formative years I was part doing cultural practice, and the other part I was growing up. If you're from Hawaii, you'll know the fact what I say. I grew up a Hawaiian boy. Mm-hmm. And all my friends got into the meth trade and all of that was really early on. So I had this really distinct visceral um, awareness of poverty and also a distinct awareness of traditional practice because my father and his peers raised me doing traditional work. And the commonality between the two was power. It was understanding how do you get things done. And when I went to the university, it was a very different narrative as much as I appreciated my studies, you know, and like, teachers of Halaniki Trask, and and all of those folks. You know, we started doing activism and I started learning a lot about um, the resistance. There was good, there was parts of it I really glommed onto and there was parts of it I really had to think about hard. The parts that I glommed onto was all the things where I got the chance to learn yeah. with rigor about my ancestry. Because yeah. I had knew the practice of working in the land, but because then I began to speak Hawaiian and study and, and be involved through the university and learning my cultural practices, I realized I now could learn the syntax to a language I was born speaking. And once I started learning the syntax of it, because I never spoke Hawaiian, grand- we my grandparents didn't learn it or anything. We just did Hawaiian work. Once I started learning the language and learning chants and all these things the university provided me, it was like my head broke open because wow, this, it makes sense this way the part i always wrestled with was the idea of activism i think activism is aspires to agency it aspires to being able to get decision making back (laughs) but going from hawaiian studies to planning then you begin to understand when you go into planning man if you're going to get your stuff back you better be ready You better be ready thinking about infrastructure. You better be ready about thinking what's your economic engine. You better be ready to think about what your governance model is that allows for dissent. Mm -hmm. You better be ready to think about do you want to create an isolated kingdom and keep everyone out? Or do you want to integrate into systems around you? So I'd look back to our ancestors and see how they wrestled with that. And they did some really neat things and therefore where I'm at now in the Office of Indigenous Innovation, I think is a point of continuity. Because in the research arm of the university, a lot of the things, the framework that we're presenting, for us, innovation is restoration. That our our ancestral practices are really loaded. They don't say Hawaiian culture, for example, because that's the wrong words in English for choose to describe them. I say ancestral sciences and technologies of integrated biosystems management, Mm -hmm. with the science talking about a pedagogy, and a way of teaching and a way of discerning. And technology is execution and putting forth of those tech of those sciences to to do stuff. And to be really in the space and we're talking here is like, don't call Hawaiian culture culture. This is a science. And the distinction between our sciences and your sciences is i can talk to you about what our science is optimized for i can talk about who's considered a scientist i can talk to who owns the research and I can talk to you how your science don't mean shit unless you can execute it and how you look to the execution of your sciences through the technologies to see people in abundance the ancestral sciences of this place was optimized for calibrating between natural and living systems. And the ways that you saw it work was that people were fit and the landscape was abundant. So it's so open ended and provided a little bit rambly on that. But I think an important component of it is I'm not just in the research. I'm the university really trying to bring forward this idea of what does it mean to be in these spaces positioning our ancestry as innovation, but making sure that the communities are at the table and co-designing what comes out of these things and owning the IP and being supported and executing it in their own terms so that they can reclaim the economic engines, they can reclaim our education systems. Mm -hmm. And we talk about our ancestry. We're no longer fighting for a place to be at the table, but being invited because people need us to help them solve the shit they created.
1: Yeah. Like the systems
0: that help us figure this out, yeah. and I think that that's a long-winded answer. Maybe that went no face no, near what you're. That no, makes sense. It's like you're talking
1: about flipping the script, right? How how this dynamic unfolded, where they messed up the world and ultimately messed up our lands, and therefore the ones who have the answers are are us. Right. And that like I really like how you're painting this picture, like some solid words you stated that really clicked with me were where you said, We need the infrastructure, like we need the governance system, we need the economic system and and we need to be able to do stuff and execute, you know, the plans that we have. And and that's where I'm at, like as a PhD candidate right now, working on my thesis. It's like, well, how does the governance system work? How does that economic system work? Like if you want land back, then like obviously in my territory in Saskatchewan, it's a business province. So for me, it n- naturally, it's like, well, we're going to have to figure out a way to have a conversation about this economic system and find a way to feed ourselves too through Land Back, because Land Back's not just like an activist slogan. It literally requires a bigger macro conversation around infrastructure and how we're going to feed ourselves and what systems are we going to operate in and, and where's our infrastructure? Like, where is it? And, and how do we move forward?
0: Absolutely. Yeah. That's the thing that pisses me off. Is I think about, and maybe I'm sorry if, if I'm offending anyone. And again, I don't romanticize activism because yeah. I was an activist. Yeah, for a yeah long you time. were
1: there as a little guy.
0: <laughs> and we got the scars to prove it, and we have the burnout and the drugs and all of the repressed anger mm-hmm. and these things that come from it. Activism is a colonial legacy. Mm. We learned, we learned activism in the same way we learned other things, right?
1: And then, um Mm, yeah yeah so like activism is basically all we could resort to do at in some moments in time but it's not all we are right can you give some examples of what you mean
0: so to give some tangible examples and then also the part i think is really important to note is like a i also don't romanticize our ancestors Mm, mm -hmm. i mean I, i humanize i mean i i i when you romanticize your ancestors, then you don't provide a critical lens to your own past, you know. And you you don't love people you romanticize because you don't see them as people. Mm. You don't give them the grace to have made mistakes. Yeah. You don't mm-hmm. give yourself the license to address the mistakes you make in your life because the stakes are so high. And it's completely understandable to romanticize your ancestors, mm. especially when these motherfuckers made us feel so shitty about ourselves for generations. Yeah. Part of my french but I've learned that is like you know when you when you don't have a healthy relationship with your past, there's a form of built-in trauma to romanticize your ancestry. You can love them with every ounce of your being.
1: the difference between loving our ancestors but not romanticizing the very specific conditions and behaviors as a result of those conditions. Like, we, like this element of humanizing them, it's, it's really cool, it speaks to me and that distinguishment is really important. So like I like this element of, of where you're, you're highlighting the importance of, of not romanticizing them but also choosing to love them. And then at the same time being mindful of of our ancestors being the products of, of their environment. In order to live, we had to work together and function together communally as humans.
0: But you saw them as humans. What I do romanticize is our land. Mm.
1: The
0: land wow. taught our ancestors first. Yeah. And like that as like, you know, when's the last time we taught the mountain something? Or the ocean something when we restore those types of relationships, we really understand the brilliance of our ancestors because they learn these things from the land. And like you move past to romanticization when you start doing the actual work and then you get to um you get to a space of like admiring them. <laughs> You're like, wow, that was I'm learning the same things as you did, grandpa. Like I'm learning these things from you. Like you these things were learnable.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You really invoked a memory I have of my late father who who always said and took time to mention that our culture's not lost and it's not being lost. It's out there on the land. And it's really cool for me to connect these dots in my brain as you're you're talking about this because it's important to highlight that Our culture stems from the land. It's not the other way around. Like I like how you said, when was the last time you taught a mountain something? So the landscape is literally the best teacher. And just recently, like a few months ago, when it got cold, we we, we took our daughters camping and and we were out there together and (laughs) I was literally thinking about fatherhood and in terms of how my ancestors most likely stood here on this landscape watching their kids play. And... And the landscape, for the most part, here, the horizon line is the same. Like, it hasn't changed drastically in thousands and thousands of years. So when we go out onto these landscapes and we see the horizon line, when we see, you know, the, the very unique uh, topography of, of the landscape, um, it's the same. And, and I just had this really interesting awareness that I wasn't the only person to ever do this in that location before, that there was others before me. But it wasn't like the relationship to my ancestors or people who've done it before me. It was the relationship and the observation I had of watching this land-based marker on the horizon and how it's always been there. And, and this, this is what sticks out for me, is, is that it was the land. I guess what I'm trying to say is it was that space and landscape observing me. Um, and and it felt cool. It felt unique. And, and I like how you said, when was the last time you taught the mountain something? Or when was the last time you taught the land something? It doesn't work that way. The land teaches us. The land is our teacher in that regard, like how you're explaining it and highlighting it. And I, and I really like that. And I feel like there's a real big cultural resurgence around identity and culture and looking the part, but not so much practicing the part. And I feel like culture has been compartmentalized to be really ethnographic or, or be really, like, um, explanatory in terms of this is all we need to do and concentrate on. And the land is absent in that. Like, the, the experience and interaction with the changing landscape is absent in that. And part of that, too, in North America, I feel, is because we do have really... Um, we do have a big population that lives in urban existence. So the symbiotic relationship between culture and land may not necessarily be an option in some cases. And, and obviously, you know, the history of, of North America being very bloody, very brutal. So there's very real reasons why we, we don't necessarily have a physical interaction with land. And it's interesting how a lot of people's work tends to um, compartmentalize culture. To the point of where the land is not necessarily within the conversation or they justify not being able to get out there or they justify all this very physical expression of culture. But literally that came from our intimate relationship with the topography, with the landscape, with, with the land and territory that we're from and this is why like I feel like a lot of our old people who are very aware know that the land and the land-based practice tied to those landscapes is is more important than the cultural expression. So, I'm connecting a lot of dots hearing you speak about this and it's it's really cool to to have this conversation with you. I feel though that some of the listeners or people out there in general will want to ask the question of how do we not romanticize our ancestors. Because yeah, you highlighted how it is like a result of trauma to want to romanticize them because we don't necessarily have a relationship or in some cases even a lineage to them in terms of, of not knowing what they knew, not speaking what they spoke. Uh, and so there's a tendency to want to romanticize but the question for you then is is how do we how do we not romanticize our ancestors and view them as humans and view them as as ultimately humans who at times make mistakes and and are also learning because i think that's more of like a common thread i have with my ancestors now that you mention is that i'm human and they were human we're learning they were learning i'm a father they were a father so How do we not romanticize them?
0: Allow them the grace of having been humans and made mistakes to not bring everything with them. Allow yourself the grace to be a learner. But have the idea of what are your measures of accountability? And I think super important to this work is something we thought a lot about at Mao, Mm. about this idea of indigenizing. (laughs) To me, that's the continuity of decolonizing. My father, if <laughs> I share this video, this part of the zero boundaries he had, we uh, were really like, okay, <laughs> we had us as little kids demo one of our old workplaces, me and my brothers. Was, okay, just break this stuff down. We learned really quickly about things like load-bearing beams. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know,
1: and,
0: and then he also um, made us build our own home from the ground up because wow. we were complaining. He did a bunch of stuff. I'm realizing when we over the summers so of when we were 12 to 18, I think he's one of the most brilliant dealing with puberty strategies. Yeah. <laughs> these kids are like, going to have a whole, he had a whole bunch of boys. They're going to have all these raging <laughs> hormones. And I have them for the summer. Let's make them do some really hard physical labor. Um But I found that demoing a house, if you... Is hard. Building a house is something completely different. Yeah. And the thought that had to go between the orders and staging of building a house, of knowing the different components, knowing the difference between laying the cement, to framing it, to putting in the electrical, to putting in the windows. Then right after we built our house, Oh, well, who we had the biggest hurricane we ever saw in Niki. This was 92. And then, after we had done build our house. But we were rather like just watching our house through the window because it was an external house yeah. that we had built. And with that, as well, we'll get a chance to see how good a job we did. <laughs> but bringing that to the space of indigenizing, you can't just deconstruct things. Yeah, And I think that's one of the challenges I think a lot about Indigenous as an Indigenous academic. That if it's not tied to practice, there's a romanticizing of it. But if you're getting tenure, (laughs) you better make damn sure that you're not blowing smoke up people's ass that don't have tenure, that aren't getting paid to say radical things, who are living day to day by what they are getting from the system. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You're going to have a whole bunch of pissed off people coming after you when they realize they no longer have food. So this idea for me of indigenizing is to repurpose the structures that were thrust upon you to be vehicles for ancestral responsibilities. What we think about in this process is, A, what are the ancestral practices you want to bring with you? Understand your ancestry with rigor. Mm -hmm. If you have access to your practices, do them. Do the literature reviews, do them, get calluses, but the first phase is then how what is your aha moments by doing them in a contemporary society and what it provides you like being able to be successful in a contemporary society. The second level of indigenization uses PICO framework, which is like a, I learned from one of our mentors Like your PICO O is your fontanelle, it's your connection to your ancestors. Your PICO E is your navel and it's the connection to the living, the O. And the piko'o as a reproductive organs, and that's your connection to future. So the first level of analysis is your piko'o. Like, what are your ancestral systems? Be super explicit. Don't just say indigenous. Name it. And name the specific role it played in the broader systems around it. How is it measured? What was the practices and all of those different things? The second part of it was, um, then how do you deploy these, how do you deploy these um, systems in contemporary society with the end goal of promoting executive decision making in your own community so you can't just do the oh we want to adopt this or that because it will get us jobs like like what is the moral compass and the principles and the the measurements that guided your ancestor frameworks the laws the infractions around it and how do you bring those two into a contemporary space to identify okay this is this is how we can deploy these systems and where we own, but allows us decision-making power. Um, and not the kind of through guilt, but decision-making power through people affording you what you've done in a contemporary. And then the Pico'a, the last level of indigenization to means the future. is how is your accumulating of agency now providing future generations the platform for abundance, knowing that climate change is here, knowing that all of these things are there. An example for us is ma'o. So the two things we tracked on a daily basis on the farm was sales and GPA, the sales of products and the GPAs of students. <clears throat> so we went from angry Hawaiians to job creators and degree designers. And you didn't have to be Hawaiian to work at ma'o, but what was super critical was we did the preliminary analysis first. In our ancestral systems, we were self-sufficient in valleys. At the end of the year, like in this time of the year, in the, in the rainy season, the chief would come to each valley and the people of the valley would do show how much food could be produced and how strong they were. And in a non-monetary economy, that's your year-end reporting to your chief where you got your contract renewed. Mm. And they could see the people then weren't serfs. They weren't commoners; They were experts. They were economists. Because for our chiefs, we didn't have the intermediary of money. We had manna. Which was ability to see productivity around you. We tracked those two coordinatives of those two like measurements of fitness of people and abundance of landscapes into a contemporary metrics. Fitness of people became GPAs and VMIs. Abundance of landscape became sales of product. And because mall was created as a nonprofit that generated revenue, it allowed us to put structure on how we raised our money. And how the money was executed and invested back, and the transparency that was inherent in being a nonprofit that people could read our books and give us input on how we do it. It allowed us to, though, claim agency (laughs) because we're hitting shit, man. If you're from an indigenous community and you're getting brown butts and seats in college, the university needs you. If you're from an indigenous community and you're feeding people outside of the community, they need you. If you're an Indigenous community and you're informing their sustainability frameworks, they need you. If you're creating college degrees that other people can go to that allows them to understand the importance of your ancestry, their role in it, if they're not Hawaiian, but you're directing it, (laughs) they need you, right? And I think that moving towards um, indigenization honors the fact that all of the people that were activists had to be activists and they fought like hell. And they gave their lives to stop the violence as it was happening. But I think if we continue to be activists in Hawaii um, and not have that discern, we always have to not how to fight, never stop with that. But if you just leave with fighting all the time, I feel, A, we dishonor those that fought so hard because it showed that we've gained nothing. All we still have is grievance. When in actuality, because they forced us to learn English and go to their college, such value proposition of our hands like we can be doing so many things now, like we are, we are doing so many things now that we can reposition ourselves, you know, and, and set the future generations up to have the infrastructure, to have the economic engines and have those things where if we do, we, when we do reclaim agency, it'll be on our terms. So I think that is playing
1: the long game. Yeah, and I really like how you highlighted that you took your ancestral history and and basically took the moral compass and applied it to the very specific conditions you're living in. In your territory. Um, and I think there's val- there is value in that. Like I see the value in that and the uniqueness of that. And, and again, it's providing me a moral compass too. And that long game is really interesting for me too now, especially as a father. And the fact that we need infrastructure, like we need infrastructure, and I'm not saying let's go all out and be like imitation white men or imitation capitalists, but let's have a very good concrete conversation about what's going on in our territory and what's our moral compass on how we navigate that and disrupt it. And again, build that house, like how you talked about, it's a completely different process to build a house as opposed to deconstructing a house. And, and, and my my friends, my bros that I grew up with, they have kids too, right? So it's like, how are we feeding our kids in a sustainable way? So it's not just like going out there and, and wanting to fight the settler farmer who's racist. It's not. I want to figure out a way to sustain my family through maybe some of your practices and our land-based relationship. And and I want, like for me, right now where I'm at with my analysis is, is I want... I want that economy because <laughs> they're making millions off it and we're not. And we literally are like starving in our own homeland and Canada's like selling all our grain. It's, it's technically our grain. Same with the forest industry, right? So I'm not saying to go in and extract resources or go and be all like um, negative about it and clear cut forests or anything like that. No, what I want is, is agency to determine what we need, how we're going to get it and ultimately do it sustainably. <laughs> And I guess like this, this like for me, like I I see the need for an agrarian reform on the prairie. Um, like I really look f- up to like Thomas Sankara in terms of how he repurposed the land for for the people. Ultimately,
0: Oh, man. And I, I think I I'm, I'm just as I'm talking to I'm losing. and bring a lot of heat. To me. I mean, if I'm saying things that sound sideways to people or disrespectful, that is not my intent. I carry a lot of privilege as a native client as a college-educated one and as a cis male. Um, so I have a lot of things to learn, too. So I, my intention is to always be learning about how, how what my accountability is to my words. Um, but I'm also very, like, excited because, you know, as a parent, too, <laughs> one of the things that I feel really fucking drives me crazy is, like, people just subscribe to the fact that, oh, well, everything's horrible and, you know, the, um, there's a the German word for it, I always slaughter, but taking pleasure in one's own unhappiness. Mm. Um, and then fuck that, right? So, like, where I'm I excited, I think, and where I see opportunities, um, we just were able to create uh, in, the, in the Americans and uh, America's like federal government um, an Office of Indigenous Innovation and Health Equity. Mm-hmm. And this office was based out of time spent with some of our cousins from Osage Nation and uh, Dr. Valerie Bluebridge-Renigan and our cousins in Aotearoa, the Naik Tahu um Maori tribe on South Island. Spent time at Ma'o and we intentionally did a ritual to be like, well, what does it mean to learn from each other?
1: Because
0: mm-hmm. they had asked us to. If they could replicate the model, and we're like, well, <laughs> you can't replicate it per exactly. se, but we can spend time together, just yeah. a full immersive week learning from each other mm-hmm. and see what fits. And the long and short of it out of that, um, there was a, at the same time a report that came out of Ma'o by one of our native scholars and Kukui, the founder's nephew, Dr. Eli Kamau where they studied the gut biomes of our students at Ma'o. And they found that if you worked on model for a year, you're 60 percent less likely to develop type two diabetes, and you save the state $15,000 per year. Wow! So we took that framework and we went and when I moved to the office of research in the University of Hawaii, um, and we put in a proposal to reenact this type of research at scale to do a landscape analysis of all indigenous practitioners who want to, to begin to identify the elements of their work that could be considered a health intervention. Yeah. We have the understanding that when we restore our practices, we restore our context for health and well-being. Um, so we got it. And basically what we'll be doing is a landscape analysis of traditional practitioners in partnership with the Department of Native Foreign Health and indigenous researchers, that will help it provide opportunities for research to show the value of traditional practice in um, reflected in human bio. Mm-hmm. We're currently working on a project too with, with the same group of people, <laughs> same community organizations, but with different researchers who are soil scientists to show how traditional practices sequester carbon mm-hmm. as well as um, heal microbes. So this idea then of traditional practitioners and having native researchers doing the research have both the cultural competencies as well as the technical capacities to draw really clear, substantial data on carbon and health, which was, as they're saying, like those are two things we measured, how fit are the people, how abundant is the landscape, mm. to have the university affirm that. And then the last part of it is um, we're creating hubs that have mixed use spaces of um, machine learning, AI and machine learning, um, data visualization centers that we have access to, to build these centers out in our community and to have spaces where you can do these measurements. But the, um, they're also situated in our communities of practice mm-hmm. to reposition Native Hawaiian practice as data science to build a data science pathways to start in high schools that teaches the kids to still hunt and still fish. You're a data scientist and then provide them the contemporary um, structures around it that would start in high school and terminate with a baccalaureate degree in data science. And what that will provide is, you know, if you want a living wage job, being a data scientist is a pretty good way to do it. But if you call your ancestry data science first, like, that's what they were doing.
1: Yeah.
0: And you rooted in that practice, you're validated by the system and your ancestry is elevated as data science and you don't have to have the culture of inferiority, or inferiority anymore. Mm-hmm. And what we want to do with that is to replicate so much of our stories, like our our, our, our champions, like Maui, Hiyaka, they had tools. Maui, you probably saw Disney. <laughs> Moana, yeah. <laughs> And monaya Kalani was Maui's technology, it was his hook by which he changed the atmospheres and spaces around him. And we understand those stories not just of who we were, but who we were expected to be to use contemporary technologies as a magnifier of our traditional practices so that we can be equipping indigenous people to not just be doing performative things in public, yeah. but to be driving into like driving innovations that can help calibrate. In global issues and equipping our youth to do it. Um, and my hope is that, in the same way you would learn Greek to understand physics, or you would learn Latin to understand law, you would learn the indigenous language, or whatever space you're in, to understand sustainability. And that would afford practitioners the living wage jobs, the agency, and the executive directing decision making and recalibrating others fucked up and I'll make this caveat (laughs) I'm a first world indigenous person so my carbon footprint is probably bigger than anybody else who's actually in places Um, so I am not talking as a noble savage I am absolutely complicit so this is my responsibility as a first world quote-unquote First of all, even though it's an antiquated terminology, like I participate in consumerism as much as anybody who's not I, yeah. I feed this beast as much as anybody else so It's on me. Wow. To be able to figure that out, to be completely self-aware and not to ascribe an other to the person that's fucking off the road is me. And what do we do? What do I do to account for that? Um, so that was a little bit of thinking about when your last questions. Like, you know, where where do we want to go and what are some opportunities explicitly? um that i bring from mao into
1: this space yeah that's amazing you're it's like you're bridging you're bridging it all and that's what what attracts me to your conversation and and how you're explaining things is is it's simply beyond recovering the cultural practice there's so much more to it like even how you said don't call it culture call it what it really is it's Uh it's it's a bigger system it's a bigger knowledge system and and it's tied And it's tied to everything cosmology and and the times we live in and and you you breaking that down it's really forcing my brain to think now too because it's more than just learning how to hunt you know it's more than just like like for me my project was archery like that that's a quiver back there right one of our traditional bows and, and, and for our listeners we're on zoom having a conversation looking at each other and i have on my wall, my, my quiver hanging up on the wall. But, but I realized like with you talking, like using that as an example is that the archery and warrior culture is really romanticized not only by Hollywood, but even by our own people. And you know, that whole concept of the bow, um, like one of my mentors always said, the bow is not a weapon, it's a tool for livelihood. And that it wasn't until later where it started to be labeled and branded and used as a weapon, but it was first and foremost a tool a tool that will provide food for people to come together and eat. So for your family, for your community, and ultimately even for diplomacy, because you would have to come together to eat and share a meal together and, and have conversations and, and mitigate issues. So I always thought of that in terms of how do we take those moral compasses and apply it to that practice today? And, and what's my philosophy as somebody who shoots bow and admires that tool? And and you did the same, like you took the ancestral teachings and history and applied it to the very specific conditions and found a way forward. I mean, to me, it would be like a survivance and continuance for sure. And And that's what it sounds like you're doing. And you're explaining this in a way where I have never heard it before on the level and the depth you're talking about it in terms of the positionality. Of, of who you are and where you come from under these very specific conditions. But again, there's a depth to what you're saying here and it's resonating.
0: It's really because of my upbringing. And I think that also for me, like I was raised with parents that I was already doing this. Yeah. So I really carry so much weight on, like I didn't invent things. I was a product of people creating this. Space. I was a knucklehead. And people took the time to yell at me and people took the time to, kind of because they saw something and I will state like really quickly we the thing that is fundamental to all of this though is um emotional intelligence and this this idea of emo- like trauma-informed care like you can't skip to that part and I think one of the biggest things I don't I, I wrestle a lot with about my own ancestry and something that I don't romanticize and I'm really curious about it is like I don't want to be in the space where the most violent make the rules and that's why gender equity and understanding intersectionality you know and like understanding when people you know if you've been oppressed in one way you should always understand and have compassion for others who have been oppressed and be willing to listen to their thing so much of what I hope to provide in my office. My intention is that the next person I know I can take it because I'm I'm not a small guy and I can speak well to people (laughs) in English, you know, but and I'm cis uh, and I'm like, you know, fight for 11. Two forty,
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you bring up an interesting point in terms of a lot of these systems are dominated by white males, are dominated by settlers and colonizers. um and and then obviously, like you highlight how you were um, your cis man. Um what are your thoughts on this?
0: I understand that, but my hope is that the person who takes this office next year they're going to be Maho or a woman. And then like, how do I use my ability to be physical to create a defensible space for those who actually know what they're doing. Like they, they're not the most violent, but are they're, they're like, they just see things and they understand things and they're thoughtful. And they, you know, the, the entry to this should be rigor. The entry point should be self-awareness. The entry point should be a willingness to be criticized, a willingness to learn. You know, not that I have the flashiest or needest things, because then we just replicate the system that's not thoughtful, that's not responsive, that's not actually compassionate. And we romanticize the violent parts of our lives because it allows us to survive now but sure shit wasn't the wasn't the fullness of who we were as a people right uh, and i really want to emphasize that like all this stuff is really great but if at its core if it's not matriarchal if it doesn't have this space for those who ascribe to be like gender fluid to feel comfortable well, it's not worth shit. it isn't worth like it isn't worth doing because it just becomes a culture of violence. And I think that is something I really I really wrestle with a lot as a cis male who grew up in violence. Like how do you not ascribe that to our identity? Um, ascribe like violence was a part of it. It was something we had to understand, but it wasn't who we were. We were generative people and we valued healing because healing was practical and healing, healing created life. And we had rituals for death and and for conflict, but it wasn't it didn't subsume us. I want that to be is is and close with it. Is what I think the end goal should be.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. That's amazing. Yeah, you're definitely like um, um, influencing my brainwaves because uh, for me, like I said, it's important for me to think about the alternatives. Like if 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 like if we're critiquing industry, then we have to be willing to find our people. A way of life to sustain themselves. thank like, you, know, you know what I mean. And 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 that's where my brain's at. And then it kept coming up. Like I know Kam was going to have some context for this. I know Kam was going to have some context for this because he's doing something, and you're delivering results. And I think that's what I'm attracted to right now is I want to see people who, who are delivering the result and 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 creating change and, and actually collecting the data. And data collection so pivotal because, like you making those references is is just. It's there, like the data's there, the results are there. And this is so much more than just like, you know, grandstanding or looking cool for the camera. This is actual results here.
0: Everything Indigenous, I understand, was to be able to execute. You were judged on what you could execute. Talkers had a very precarious position. Now we have the buffer of Costco's and all this other shit where you can talk and no one's going, well, I guess it sounds good. Back then, there was no artificial way to get, you couldn't like magically just get old. There was no built in human obsolescence. Like you had to execute. And I think the one inherent dangers i see seen in contemporary indigeneity is like that, the idea of education separate from employment. Mm. Like our scholars were in the fields. <laughs> yeah, <scholars>. yeah. <laughs> like you could talk a lot, but you fucking better have a bunch of food behind <laughs> your mouth yeah. because otherwise you're going to be like, you're taking up a lot of space. Exactly. You know, you, you know, these great ideas, but, you know, you know, and, and I do not mean to denigrate the rigor of the academy. And I think it's super important that we do this because I'm paid at the university. Shit, if I've been on a farm for two years now. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you can, not because of the space that we're holding, point really directly to what we're allowing to grow, then we don't deserve to be employed. Yeah. Then we need to be regrounded again to learn it better, to come into these systems and try again. I do think this, um, to your point, there is no easy answer and there is no silver bullet. There is a dailiness to this and everything is subject to entropy. Today's good idea is tomorrow's antiquated things. So what I will say is so important is ritual. Our rituals of accountability allowed, they, they weren't empty they are how we commune with each other and how we assist our work and how we assist our landscape. And that the idea of indigeneity is really interesting. One of my mentors, Antio Monumeyer, talked like indigeneity is continuity. So you're indigenous to some place. Um, if you're indigenous to a space, that means you're part of a linear continuity that has thousands of years of research and development. They're highly in tune to that space that will always be important to conversations. If you're not indigenous to that space, the way you show up, you support those who are indigenous. And the thing I love about our ancestors, like Komenem, how they ascribed allies. They're like, well, we're strong in our shit. You look strong in your shit. You wanna join us? -hmm. Here's our family, this is the rules. We can work together, you know, and versus they did these bad things to us. Mm. Can you help us? And I understand that that's really necessary for some people, some communities to actually have to ask. But at some point, you should be like, this is where we're strong. Because the people that will come in will be strong too. And we get to choose who allies with us. And we get to say, we like what you're doing. We want to learn from you. And I think that, I think, is such, there is a hunger for indigeneity because the human experience, for most of us, pre-industrialization was indigenous. We have strong ties to landing places. So when we're aware of that, we're aware of our value. I think it allows us how we move forward into the future, yeah. um, defining it.
1: Yeah, it is. It definitely is. And and if what comes up for me in terms of your work in projects is like your results, if we put that in a big pile of food, your pile would be huge, <laughs> like your project, you know, like how you said you have to have food behind your mouth, like, like. The results are there, and, and and that's why you know I look forward to learning from you and, and having this relationship going on into the future because it's badass to see and and you can't you can't debate that like like how you do do um put put some coals to the feet of academics because a lot of them are fancy talkers you know they talk really pretty out the mouth but then when you look at their projects there's not much there not to discount them because I'm obviously oh. in the academy but we do like you said there's a quote you said where you need to get those calluses on your hand too. Too, right because that's wisdom like the the calluses and the time you put in is literally you know you're learning in that process
0: and all people deserve grace right and all people deserve an opportunity and i super don't want to be an indictment it's just like maybe it's my own baggage too but i i i'm far from perfect <laughs> and, I, and i really more than anything else for welcome critiques of these ideas because it's how we we welcome rigor.
1: Yeah, and and like all through your conversation, you definitely had uh, your little trigger warnings, but they're definitely coming from a place of like truth and experience and and it, it's causing me to think, and I know a lot of our listeners are gonna think about what you're saying too. And if if they wanted to know more about what you do or projects you're referring to, how do they, they see what Mao's doing or what you're doing?
0: Sure. No, and that, that's a really good question. You can put the web page up, and that was my genealogy of practice. I'll send over a link of on um, different organizations that I was a part of. Um, as far as the office, we're still brand new, and you know we're still trying to figure out who we are. You, you can get in contact with me via my email. Uh, just ken os at hoera um, I can't guarantee you or get to the right way like I'm up to my
1: neck and stuff. But Yeah, you're a busy guy. I'm glad you made time for us though. This no, this
0: is my accountability measure. I really, really, you know, I'm I'm accountable to indigenous people of practice. You know, and I think the other systems around me, I try to translate our strengths and try to negotiate what it looks like. But my actual accountability is of people of land. And that will always be true for that was how it was my dad was accountable too. and so i really appreciate I see this as my accountability to be authentic and vulnerable and honest about what i'm doing and to be called out if it um, welcoming being called out if there's ways that it feels that i'm co-opting things right? if i'm moving into dangerous territory because i'm really <laughs> and when you look at where i'm situated i am in the the Office of Research of Arlan University for the State of Hawaii.
1: Yeah, yeah. And then you're, you're like you said, your 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 reference to wayfinding, right? You're navigating it in real time. You're there and you made time for us to talk about it. And now we gotta to...
0: Stars are different, the birds
1: different, the boats the same. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Are there any shout outs you wanna give before we close off?
0: Yeah, so I really want to make clear that, you know, my office now is the first opportunity I have to be explicitly having leadership over. Before that, I was able to do my work as a learner. um, And as a beneficiary of Kukui and Kukui Mauna Kea, and Gary fourth, um, husband and wife team that were the founders of Ma'u um, that allowed me after I graduated from college to move back home to my community. Um, and you know, through their intentionality of Kukui being, you know, of OEV Kanaka, um, and her part of a family in Wai'anae that had put generations of work in as activists, her grandmother, um, Catherine Mauna Kea, was one of the matriarchs of Wai'anae, one of those families that was early on as Kanaka, were really serious about, how we establish our economic stability as people, and she imparted that on her children and her grandchildren. And Kukui was such a holder of that iké, and her husband Gary, you know, models allyship. He, he's Kiwi, he came up from Aotearoa and played rugby in Hawaii, but he as a Pakeha anon, Auli really dove in with all the kanaka and, and activism and lent his voice and then his strength to back hawaiians and reclaiming their land and when he met kukui he just jumped behind her and used his standing in western society as a cis white pretty big rugby playing male to get behind her and say that like, you know however i can back you and your people i will and he did it not just to talk but showing up every fucking day on the farm and doing everything he can and learning everything he was taught and imparting it to the youth of the community. So they were my mentors, so ma'o was really their vision and they allowed me to enter in their space. And also, like, before that, my father and all of his peers and the creation of Ka'ala Farms and these other spaces, if I know anything, it's because people took the time to invest in me and did the hard dailiness of adulting, of rating the grants and the reporting and the HR and all of those things so that I could learn. So all the projects and especially the projects that you saw when you came to Ma'o, there there's bases that were built that I was able to help and collaborate with. But so much of the work is when we talk about our work is always ours. Um, there is no one single, we try to really create this idea that everyone is important, but no one's invaluable. Um, that we, we, we're li- we work workers in a lineage. So continuity is our collective responsibility. I just so happen to um, been able to train this maybe even to articulate what we do in ways that makes sense. But the visions I shared and the thinking was all done in co-design with so many people. So I super don't want to lay claim to any of the, the thinking and knowledge is something that um yeah that came from me as much as came about, about as being a part of things with many people and many of them non-Hawaiian that um were living in Hawaii and chose to be with Hawaiians and chose to. Um, you know, to back us. And in, in exchange, we backed them. <laughs> so I think, and we had this cross-sharing of information. So that was just a big thing. I just wanted to make sure that, you know, so much of the things that I've been lucky enough to be a part of was because of others that have done it before me uh, and took the time to explain it to me, especially often when I didn't deserve it. <laughs> you know, and they were patient with me in that space so that's why when i say grace and when i say it, people provided grace i don't necessarily mean it from a christian perspective I mean it like in the literal sense of like they could have not because i wasn't asked i wasn't behaving often in ways that warranted them taking the time to teach me but they did anyway and that's really important that i wanted to share
1: awesome awesome well thanks for making time i really appreciate everything you said and the time you gave us
0: I really appreciate being here, man. I appreciate being asked and I appreciate any feedback people can provide.
1: Yeah, awesome. Yeah, and and you gave us lots to think about. I think everybody was thinking about your episode and, and what you have to share from your experience. And it speaks to me right now at this point where I'm at in my fatherhood, in my organizing, and in terms of what I want to build in terms of infrastructure. And, and activism is important. Like I'd be out there in a heartbeat if people showed up to my doorstep. I also want to think about building something that can sustain me, my family, and and my people, and ultimately the masses. And that's why it's so great to see the 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 food that you've grown, or the food food that these projects you're invested in have grown, and and what they've given people. Like that speaks to me um, on on multiple levels.
0: I really appreciate that you appreciate the work that we're doing, and I wanted to be really clear that these ideas are always created in collectives and with each other. um, So that, yeah, there are a lot of people who really carry a lot of traditions. And I think I guess the part I find is really interesting, too, is like the reason why this is so unique in some ways is because Hawaiians have had a different colonial experience and we have you know, it's really impinging upon me to be um, clear on the intersectionality because indigeneity is a construct and that we cannot use it as casually as a catch all because within that taxonomy, there is so much divergence of experiences and realities. Um, So indigenous people have to practice intersectionality and awareness of intersectionality in the space. Um, And the grace that was provided Like my family was that from early on, we had enough breathing room to ask questions about economic development back in the seventies and eighties through the lens of our practices. So we just had a longer runway, Um, but it doesn't mean that we're any better like advanced. And if other communities had the same type of bandwidth that we were afforded, I'm pretty sure they would have come up with the same frameworks out of necessity. So I really want to make sure that, you know, we really appreciate the work being done by all indigenous communities in reclaiming their practices. And we want to honor our ancestors' ability to be really deft at figuring some things out to provide license for other communities to do the same.
1: Yeah. I really like how you said that. Like, I really like how you highlighted that, that... There's uniqueness to our lands. Therefore, there's uniqueness to the projects that emerge from those lands. And we can't cut and paste as much as people like to try. And I think you really fostered that in your inquiry and conversation you had with us today. Um, I like it. I, I really like everything you said. And, and again, it's getting my gears turning. It's 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 allowing me to, to think about um, a sector or an area that I normally don't think about just in terms of, broadening you know the um, broadening my resistance to actually creating infrastructure and maintaining our presence through you know other projects not just activism and not just you know pointing the finger at the colonizer um, but actually doing the work to build systems
0: yeah it's really important and I think there's a lot of safety to be held in the narrative of being vanquished because it It's really easy to ostracize those that did it to you. You have every reason in the world to. But eventually, you know, there's a sense of atrophy will set in and you don't use the muscles of like being generative. That's really hard. So yeah, I I see that that's what you're trying to do. And that's probably thankless, (laughs) (laughs) you know, and sometimes ostracizing work.
1: yeah yeah it is it definitely is and that's partly why you know i wanted to find like-minded people or people who are doing something practical uh, to get on the podcast and and share their ideas and views about the work going on in their territory and on their landscape and and taking into account very specific parameters that exist for them Um, and you did all that you really shared a lot of good information and i really really appreciate talking to you and again the time you made for us is it's, it's i'm grateful for that
0: stay in contact too and just let me know I, I welcome the future conversations too um, and what you know, if things percolate and maybe at some point I'd like to introduce you to some of my peers too.
1: Awesome yeah that'd be great. It'd be great to talk story with other people and and we're definitely open to it and yeah thanks again
0: but I really appreciate being here and I'm super down to continue the conversation anyways it makes sense for you better.
1: For sure. All right. We'll talk soon. Thank you. Okay. Uh Aloha. This episode was produced and mixed by Nicola Clausen and Mylan Tatusis, with additional administrative and production support from Daryl Lucero. If you like what we do, please like, subscribe, and share. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at The Radical Narrative Podcast. If you wish to contact us, our website is www.radicalnarrative.com.